I'm Melanie Peters for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. And I'm Heather Bushman. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N Equals One, we're talking about epigenomics. That's some of chemical tags that decorate your DNA and its packaging, influencing which genes are being used in a given cell at a given time. So Heather, we always hear that who we are is written in our genes, but it sounds like that's not the whole story. That's right, and that's why I'm actually super excited about this topic. I just think it's fascinating to think it's not just as simple as we once thought. Even if we know the exact sequence of your entire genome, it doesn't mean we know everything about you or your susceptibility to disease. We're not locked into just what we're born with. And that's because of our epigenomics or epigenetics. It's a growing field that's asking a whole new set of questions that scientists have never tackled before. I recently talked to an epigenomics expert here at UC San Diego School of Medicine. My name is Dave Gorkin. I'm the Associate Director of Epigenomics at the newly formed UCSD Center for Epigenomics. And that means Dave does a little bit of everything. A bit of a startup uh, mentality, so we all wear lots of hats. So we're really trying to build this thing from the ground up. And what we want to do, what our vision is, is to be able to leverage epigenomic research and epigenomic technologies in a very big way in the fight against cancer and, and other diseases. All right, so I get the idea that our DNA has these tags, these epigenetic markers, but what are they? Where are they? What do they do? Here's Dave again. I first want to give a little bit of, uh, of a primer about genomics. Uh, I think there's a few things we need to say about uh, genetics before we can talk about epigenetics. So a few things to say about genetics. Uh, the first is that when we talk about genetics, we're talking about our DNA sequence, the sequence itself. And one way to think about our DNA sequence and our genetics is that it's like a recipe book. So it's, it's a recipe book that has all the recipes that our cells need to make the things that they need to make to do what they need to do. Um, in total, it's about 20 to 30,000 recipes. And for example, uh, you know, there's a recipe for alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme that breaks down alcohol when we drink a beer. And we need that so that we don't stay drunk if we drink one beer. Um, there's a recipe for insulin uh, so that we know how to break down and use sugar after we eat a big meal. Um, and the other thing to think about when we think about DNA and genetic information is where in our body it exists. And the answer to that is that it exists inside the nucleus of every one of our cells. So we have about 10 trillion cells and inside every one of those cells is where our DNA is. Each cell has a full copy of the full recipe book. Um, but that sort of brings up a, a problem, and that is if every cell has a full copy of this recipe book, how does each cell know which recipes to use? Because each cell needs slightly different recipes, right? Our skin cells need the recipes to make skin pigment, while our liver cells need the, the recipe to make alcohol dehydrogenase. You don't want your skin making alcohol dehydrogenase. You certainly don't make, want it to be making insulin and squirting that out after you eat a meal. Um, so how is it that uh, our cells know which recipes in this big book to use? And that's where epigenomics comes in. So epi literally means, the, the prefix epi means above, and epigenetics is above genetics. So quite literally, it's, it's layers of information on top of the DNA sequence itself. And if you think of genetic information as the recipe book, 
you can think of epigenetic information as notes or bookmarks or post-its that you might stick in the recipe book to help you use your copy of the book. And in reality in our body, the form that this takes are chemical tags that are hung on the DNA itself and on its packaging. What influences our epigenetics? Are we just born with these fixed chemical tags or do we have control over them? Dave says, DNA sequence itself doesn't change, right? You're born with a DNA sequence, right. that's the one you've got, doesn't change much over the course of your life. On the other hand, epigenetics does change over the course of your life, and importantly, it changes from cell to cell in your body. So every type of cell has its own markings on the DNA, its own unique epigenetic signature, we might call it. So what controls the post-it notes? Many environmental factors do, but the biggest driver is... Development itself. So as we develop, as we go from one fertilized egg, one, one cell to 10 trillion cells, that process has built into it epigenetic changes that are happening in every cell type in the body. So that's probably the biggest driver. Other things are the environment. Uh, can change, our environmental exposures can change our epigenetics, aging process can change our epigenetics, our behavior in fact can change our epigenetics. So the, epi, the epigenome is, is quite pliable and lots of things can, can change it. But what do all these epigenetic changes mean? What effect do they have on our development and health? These epigenomic post-it notes on the genome are determining which genes are turned on or off. So that can have huge consequences in a whole number of ways. And for the ones that turn on, how high are they on? Are they on a lot? Are you using it a lot? Or are you using it a little bit? And that's really controlled largely at the epigenetic level. So that's where development, environment, behavior, those kinds of things can really impact the gene use, gene expression, gene activation. Well, can you give us a specific example of one of these post-it notes? Yeah, we think of DNA as a string of letters, A, T, C, G. They're not actual letters in our body, obviously. Those just represent certain nucleic acids strung together to make DNA. So one type of epigenetic tag is called a methyl group. It's a, a chemical group. And it can, let's say it hangs on the C, which stands for cytosine. That's one of the nucleic acids. So that's an epigenetic change to the actual DNA sequence that will then influence how the gene that that cytosine is part of will be transcribed. But epigenetic changes can also involve the way DNA is packaged in the cell. Another example is DNA is wrapped around proteins that we call histones, and this is part of its packaging. And those same methyl groups and other types of groups called acetyl groups and others can be hung on those packaging and changing the marks on the packaging can also change how the DNA is used. So what are some of the clinical implications of these epigenetic changes? Well, what Dave and other researchers are working toward now is ways to employ this knowledge of epigenetics in a way that helps diagnose or treat a disease. Epigenetics can be very useful in diagnostics because it, it is um, each type of cell and what the cell is doing has an epigenetic signature. So when a cell is doing something wrong, there will be an epigenetic signature of that kind of activity. So we can use epigenomics to perhaps diagnose diseases, to um, subtype diseases where we wanna know which, which particular mechanisms are going wrong inside of our cells. The epigenome can give us a, an insight into that that the DNA alone can't always give us. 
Um, the other thing is that, as I mentioned, epigenome influences how what cells do, how their genes are active or not. And so if we can manipulate the epigenome in some way, we can change the function of cells perhaps to correct something that's going wrong. I think you know that's what we think of more in the future, but, but that's, that's the hope. Is epigenetic information already being used in the clinic today? There are some chemotherapeutics that target the epigenome as a means to treat cancer, but it's not yet common. Probably the first frontier, or one of the first frontiers anyway, for real epigenomic diagnostics and epigenomic medicine is in cancer. Um, so we know that epi, the epigenome is very messed up in, in many cancers, as is the genome. Uh, you know, the genome being messed up really right. is what's driving cancer. But certainly we, we know of cases where um, the, the epigenome uh, being um, perturbed in cancer causes genes to act in ways that they shouldn't, and that can contribute to the cancer. And there are uh, chemotherapeutics, dr drugs that are used to treat cancer, which target the epigenome. They, their mode of action is to alter the, the epigenome and the machinery in the cells that controls and maintains the, the epigenome. I, I would characterize a lot of what we do now as very broad swords. You know, we, we come in and we, we're, we're knocking a whole pathway or a whole set of epigenomic marks. And the challenge for us as a field, I think, is to get more and more targeted. Well, what are some common misconceptions about this field? I mean, we're so used to hearing that something is a silver bullet or some <laughs> other cliche. Ugh. What's a pet peeve of epigenomic researchers? Dave says he's tired of hearing that something, whether it's a, a trait or a disease, is due to either nature or nurture, meaning it's either inherited or due to the environment. Uh, from my perspective anyway, my personal opinion is that any distinctions we draw are, are really just in our own mind. That the distinction between the, the genome and the epigenome and between nature and nurture they work hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And we can draw lines in the sand and we can make strict definitions in a textbook. But at the end of the day, you know, you can't have one without the other. And you can't think of one without the other. And trying to go in and draw the line where one ends and the other begins is very, very difficult. So I think, you know, epigenomics and genomics really go hand in hand, I think. And the, the other thing I, I would like to, or misconception, I, I guess you could call it that, that I'd like to speak to a bit is, the misconception that epigenomics or genomics is only the realm for scientists or academics. You know, I think whether we want it to or not, the epigenome is affecting our lives every day, each and every one of us, and more and more it's going to be part, I, I believe it's going to be more and more part of our healthcare and all kinds of decisions in our lives. And I think it's, it's you know, incumbent on all of us, scientists, non-scientists, everybody, to 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 learn about it and those of us who already know about it to teach about it and communicate about it. and. Um, so I, I encourage people who are interested in epigenomics, whether you're a scientist or not, um, you know, let's, let's learn about it together. I think that's, that's really important. Well, can epigenetic markers be passed on generation to generation like genetic variations are? Good question. Uh, it's sort of controversial, but yes, in some cases. I was asking Dave about an article I had read that proposed that trauma due to war or abuse, for example, can influence a person's epigenome in a way that can be passed on to one's children. 
I read and, that too. Yeah, I, I thought it was that. super interesting. So I wondered what he thought about that. And here's what he said. Yeah, and there are definitely examples where that seems to have been the case, where there's a very large famine, for example, and then a generation or two down the line, it has impacts on the health or in some other way on the biology of, of, of populations whose ancestors went through such a famine. I think the idea of transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is a bit of a controversial one. Mm -hmm. There are a few steps at which the epigenome kind of gets cleared off. So all those marks and bookmarks get taken out um, during uh, as we develop our, our reproductive organs. And then during very, very early embryogenesis, there's also a clearing of the epigenetic marks. So that the thinking is that much of the epigenetic marks from your parents, for example, get cleared off. But it's possible that some of them make it through, and there certainly seem to be examples of that. Hmm. The other thing to think about when we think about transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is that the only cells that actually get passed on are your germ cells, right? Sperm if you're a man and, and uh, eggs if you're a woman. And so the epigenetic changes that happen in our skin cells, in our brain cells, in our liver cells, those probably don't get passed yeah, on, right? Yeah. There's no mechanism for those to, to get yeah. passed on. So we're really talking about what has happened in our germline, in our, in our sperm or egg cells, and how that gets passed on. Um, and that's still a very, very active area of research um, in, in which I should say I'm not an expert specifically <laughs> right. in that subfield, right. uh, but very interesting, and I think we're going to learn a lot more in coming years about that. So what types of things are Dave and the team in the Center for Epigenomics working on now? They look at all kinds of ways the epigenome is changed by many different diseases, including cancer, diabetes, heart disease. They want to know how those chemical tags are changed in these various conditions and how they contribute to that disease. But they also we'll study just normal development because, of course, I mentioned much of the, what changes the epigenome is just the course of our development, and we want to understand those mechanisms. So I've been a, a part of a, a large-scale project that um, has many uh, participating institutions around the country. It's called ENCODE, and it stands for Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. And our role in ENCODE has been to survey the epigenome over the course of mouse development. So we've looked at 12 different organs in the developing mouse, and we've gone all the way from about 10 days after fertilization all the way to birth. And, and profile the epigenome in all of those tissues at all of those time points. And what we really want to do is create kind of a roadmap, a, a, a starting point, so we know what the epigenome should look like, so that when we then look at disease, we can see where the important changes mm -hmm. might be. Well, where do you think this field is headed? What will we see in five or 10 years? Dave bets that in five years, you and I will both know someone who has had an epigenomic test to diagnose a disease. He also thinks we'll see many more drugs in the pipeline that were discovered by epigenome research or actually directly target epigenomic changes. Well, so it occurs to me that epigenomics adds another layer to this concept of personalized medicine that we're always talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, this idea that therapies can be targeted to a person's specific disease including their unique gene variations, molecular markers, and now, presumably, epigenomic markers? Yeah, and I asked Dave if epigenomics might help stratify patients. So even if we can't target a person's own unique individual epigenomics, can we use that information to stratify patients, meaning put them into disease subtypes 
based on their epigenomics. So not just, hey, you all have type 2 diabetes, but maybe you have type 2A or 2B just based on uh, common types of epigenomics. So here's what he said. I do think that's part of what we're trying to mm -hmm. do. And I think, you know, we obviously there's this big push towards personal, personalized medicine and, and it, that, that's great. And I think epigenomics can help us break down even once you have a person and an individual, that individual and that person has many, many, many different cell types. And so our epigenomics let us get to a deeper level within that person where we're not just personalized, but cellularized, personalized medicine uh, almost. <laughs> Love um, it. That's going to be the new catchphrase. <laughs> the new term. But also I do think we can, we can subtype diseases much better mm -hmm. um, because if you take a disease like cancer, for example, an individual's cancer, in one individual tumor has many different cell subtypes in it. Tumors are heterogeneous. And if you only look at the genome of that tumor, you, you are missing a lot of that heterogeneity and what these epigenomic techniques allow us to do is to really characterize what's the makeup of that tumor, what kind of cells are in there and what are they doing differently and maybe if you use a drug that only hits a subset of those cells the tumor survives whereas if we know all of the subsets of cells that are in there we can use multiple drugs to hit them at the same time maybe we can have a larger impact. That's all you know a lot of potential right now and we're we're very much at the basic end you know there's a lot of clinicians who are right on the front lines of doing that uh, but we're hoping to provide more and more basic science to help fuel those efforts. Okay, but now I need to know, how can Dave and other researchers see epigenomic tags? <laughs> I'm guessing they just can't look at DNA under a microscope, right? Right. So Dave told me that the same technological advances that have allowed for rapid, high-throughput, whole genome sequencing, the stuff we hear about all the time, have also fueled the epigenomics field. They follow a very similar process as one would to sequence DNA. So they start with cells, they extract the DNA out, but they add a couple extra steps. So before going and sequencing it, they do some what he calls molecular tricks in a test tube mm -hmm. to extract only the DNA that has certain chemical tags, certain epigenomic markers. Then they sequence only that part of the DNA. And that tells them what chemical tags are where in a particular genome. Well, so what are the limitations or challenges this field faces? I mean, what might keep Dave and others from getting to a point where we can better diagnose disease and personalize treatments based on epigenomic information? Well, as always, funding is one, right? right. You can't advance a field without research funding. So the sky is the limit as long as they continue to receive robust support from the National Institutes of Health and, and other sources. So, okay, that's true of anything. For, for epigenomics specifically, one reason it's much harder to study than genomics is DNA doesn't change, but epigenomic tags do. Oh. So researchers can use a gene editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9, and we've done a previous episode on this, mm -hmm. uh, to, manipul to manipulate genomes and Dave and other researchers can manipulate epigenomes in a similar manner, but it's not fixed. So they could use that technique to remove epigenomic tags, and then and they would presumably do that because they want to see what the effect is and understand what it is that epigenomic tag is doing, but 
the cell can then just put those tags right back on or put them on in a different place in the genome. So it's completely dynamic. It's not as, as black and white as studying um, gene variations. So it's not fixed. Yeah, yeah. They're always moving about and the cell can put them on or take them off anytime. So you can imagine how that's kind of hard to keep up with. <laughs> and here's another thing that makes the field a bit more difficult. Epigenomic researchers need a lot of people and a lot of samples from each. Ah. Hundreds of thousands of people have had their genome sequenced and that's relatively easy because researchers just need a blood sample, right? So you get a blood sample and then you know the person's entire genome. But a blood sample only gives you the epigenome of that person's blood cells. You don't know anything about the epigenome in their heart cells or their brain cells and lots of cell types that you'd actually be interested in in order to study neurological diseases or heart disease. So you can, you can imagine it's pretty slow going. Here's me talking to Dave about this. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, I call this podcast N equals one because in each episode we talk to, you know, a person about one topic, um, you know, one uh, one project or one patient story, but so often I end up emphasizing that so much of science needs much more than an N equals one. You need N equals thousands, right? And being the um, number of people or subjects in a particular research story. So, so yeah, you'll, you would need an N equals infinity almost, <laughs> right? I, I, I love that N equals one. And I think, uh -huh. you know, N equals one's really nice also because it matches with this personalized medicine exactly. that we're talking about. But the flip side of personalized medicine is if that everyone is such an individual and so different, if you only look at one, you can't apply that lesson necessarily to everybody else. So that's exactly. why we need big numbers because people vary and that variation is really important for us to take into account uh, and, and understand. Absolutely. And that's it for this episode. For N equals infinity, <laughs> I mean one, <laughs> I'm Melanie. And I'm Heather. Thanks for joining us.